Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate is joined by Adam Steiner to talk about Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, and the unique nexus of industrial, alternative, and pop music that existed in the 1990s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Adam Steiner, the author of Into the Never. Nine Inch Nails, and the creation of the Downward Spiral. Adam, welcome. Hello. And so this was a, a really interesting book. We've talked about the distant past a lot on this show, but haven't done as much 90s, have done very little 21st century stuff. And Reznor, mm. Trent Reznor, the, the main man, the sole entity creating the music in Nine Inch Nails, is very much a transitional figure from one millennium to the next. Yeah, yeah. Um and that's a really interesting perspective because it's like he has that um, weird kind of renaissance man um, of the 20th into the 21st century, as you say, um, where he crosses over between being a musician, but also um, kind of a, a, a sexual liberator in terms of the S&M aspects of his work. Um, weird kind of a style icon sort of goth but also industrial and then kind of neo-industrial or post-industrial if you like and then obviously all of his work relating to like music and technology with um soundtracking studio innovation and then working with um you know the beats headphones so it's really weird how he's actually worked in lots of different mediums um and not just as a musician yeah absolutely and you um you say that his greatest achievement is his greatest musical achievement is using the computer and studio as instruments in themselves and that that prefigures the end of music as it was defined in the 20th century. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, it's quite a grandiose statement, isn't it? <laughs> when I hear it read back to me, um, <laughs> maybe I was overreaching, but let's see. Um, yeah, for me, it was just the fact that you, you went from um, the birth of uh, rock and roll in the 50s, 60s, and then you went <clears throat> all the way through the phase of hard rock and so on in the 70s. Don't mind, I'm not going to go through every decade, um, but just by the time you come up to Trent Reznor and, um, you know, the early 1990s, you've basically sort of had grunge and then you've kind of like got what's next and there's that um, weird pressure of like coming towards the millennium and, you know, what is our future music supposed to be? And I think the way in which he, you know, really pushed the idea of the studio as an instrument, but also not just produced the record, but... Um, did so much work around sound manipulation and then found noise, ambient noise, uh, of taking film samples and things. And then also just going straight out with like raw manipulation of, um, instruments. So instead of perhaps saying I will play a, you know, a straight chord progression on my guitar, <clears throat> it was more about, I will make some noises on my guitar that sound cool atmospherically and texturally for the kind of, um, emotions I'm trying to evoke in this song. And then I'll take that piece of sound and manipulate it anyway in all kinds of strange ways, you know, pitching it down, making it slower, speeding it up twice as fast. And like that, I think that sort of like, um, should we say like wise interference just meant a really different kind of music than what you had going on at the time. Um, because it was quite a sort of, I think with the early nineties, it was quite a sort of back to basics era anyway, 
um, from the sheen and shine of the 80s. And then you are, we are now with, um, you know, well into the 21st century. And um, you have so much use of electronic uh, production equipment, you know, basic things like Pro Tools and um, vocoders and things like that and auto-tune. So the, the level of manipulation has almost kind of worked its way into music as an accepted fact. Um, so I think that's a kind of like almost a, a sort of end of music thing where so much of what we can do uh, now is artificial anyway, not necessarily in, in, a, in a bad sense, but um, the idea of a bunch of people playing in a room together as a four piece and just recording it raw and live um, is just, yeah, I just don't think it's necessarily accurate anymore. And you got a great quote that kind of elaborates on this, that Reznor's considered application of music technology prefigured the coming crisis of overproduced manufactured music that reduced playing to inputting and went far beyond the perfect and honest live take and press preference of dragging and dropping sound and auto-tuning bad singers to idealize perfection. I mean, a lot of people like Rick Beto, the YouTube musicologist, say that rock and roll was mm. killed by quantizing everything, you know, whether they take Nickelback playing live in the studio and then they sort of reconstruct it digitally so that every drum beat is perfectly in sync and every bar mm -hmm. is perfectly the same measure. And so what Reznor was doing was a lot more organic than that. And, and I think the way it survived when so much rock that came after it, although, you know, one of the other claims you make in the book is that Reznor destroyed, I think you quoted somebody else saying that this album destroyed the idea of genres. But if you had to put yeah. Nine Inch Nails in a genre, it would be industrial slash alternative. Like he played basically live with a rock band, but when he recorded in the yeah. studio, he's doing, you know, one man band inspired by Prince and the application of technology, especially samples inspired by Public Enemy, the hip hop group. And obviously Human League. Uh, was a big inspiration yeah. for him. You know, he says, you know, the, it wasn't the Sex Pistols for me, it was the Human League, and I was so excited by the idea that they did it all with computers and no human beings were involved. So kind of <laughs> yeah. prefigured the, the corner we painted ourselves into, but still had the freedom of the era. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a really interesting thing you mentioned there is the idea of it, um, you know, using a lot of machines and stuff, but it still sounds kind of organic. I think he talks about the idea of, like, it still has um, a sort of human imprint, a bit of a heartbeat behind what he's doing. So it's it's using machinery, broadly speaking, you know, technology, um, electronic stuff, as opposed to the you know the element of the soul, to to make something um, that's still very emotive and, and human-like that people can connect to. And I think that's you know one of the great validities of music if it if it brings up um, an emotional response as opposed to, you know, bile, um, it's really, you know, it's what really gets to people and, and it stays with them perhaps and they get that emotional resonance, that sense of connection. But what you said was really interesting there is about the fact that um, it's, uh, you know, he's making stuff that still feels kind of organic. It feels kind of dirty and broken and, and messy and things. And that kind of fits into like sort of post-industrial aesthetic of um, a lot of Nine Inch Nails stuff that's since become kind of a bit slicker, um, slightly more, uh, I think, like digitized, kind of working more on like glitch art and things, which is great because it's like very contemporary and sort of reflects the times. But for a long time, it was uh, very much about, you know, images of decay and like, um, you know, like pretty things like a butterfly or something crushed, made kind of dirty. Um, and that, that is also carried through into the music. You know, sometimes the music's kind of like messed up and fucked up and it sounds kind of like crappy, but it's sort of, it's meant to sound like that. So he really kind of like literally breaks stuff down or breaks it, if you like, um, and you get something like way more visceral from that. And I think that's what made him, like you said, a, a more of an alternative musician, more of a rock band than, than someone who was just producing, you know, Wham! or something like that. All due respect to Wham! obviously. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. Especially after Christmas having just passed, you got to respect Wham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but let's let's take a step back. I'm going to play it for a song so, snippet, and this is kind of an obvious choice, but this is uh, Head Like a Hole from uh, Nine Inch Nails' first album, Pretty Hate Machine.
and that was had like a whole the hit single off of Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails' first album, Pretty Hate Machine, and 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 that introduces our segment of where did this guy come from? Like, what's what's Trent Reznor's mm. biography? He's from the deindustrialized Midwest. Yes, yes. Um, it's a really it's a really interesting backstory, uh, simply because of its plainness and its commonality. And I think that's something we forget, especially with a lot of American musicians, where we, um, in uh, you know, places like the UK and Europe, um, if we were to put our like pretentious hats on, do we ever take them off? Um, you know, we're in the old world over <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, but you know, you guys like we kind of see um, America as obviously you know this vast big land of opportunity and uh, money and shine and things like that and glamour. So we always kind of like jump between the east and west. We're like, oh, it's either like LA, California or it's New York and you know, we kind of, we're quite lazy. We kind of forget everything that's in between, which is, you know, millions and millions of people um, who don't live in those extreme kind of situations, but they're still the musicians that come out and make really extreme, intriguing, inspiring music. Um, so yeah, Resna um, from small um, farming town, Mercer, Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, he, he made the common complaint that I think a lot of us would, I'm from a small village in England, um, in the Midlands. A lot of us would say the same sort of thing where it's like, uh, I'm from a small town, nothing ever happens there. No one ever came from there. There's no opportunities. Um, it's not necessarily grim. It's not necessarily bad. He talks about like, um, endless field of wheat and stuff. And anyway, you know, they think, oh, that's kind of cute. That's kind of nice. And then you also think, God, that also sounds really fucking dull. You know, what would, <laughs> what would happen to me and what happens if I stay there? You'd probably become a farmer and that is your life so you, you kind of value the wheat but um you know for some people that's okay that's what they want to do and his really common complaint that always amused me was um you know he's like oh i don't want to like spend the rest of my life pumping gas like wondering what i would do with myself and like cast station attendant comes up i think it's like his recurring nightmare um of what might have happened if like he didn't actually latch on to music and so he went over to um Alheny College, I forget where it is, it might be Cleveland, um, did a little bit of like um, computer science. I think it's Allegheny, actually. Allegheny, thank you. Oh my yeah, God, man. I would never have that. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he did some studying, which I think along with, you know, his um, classical piano training as a kid, not that he was like a child prodigy or anything, um, you know, kind of combined, and he was in like the school jazz band, I think, kind of combined to, you know, give him like rough, ready skills and intuitions of you know the possibilities of music so he wasn't just some guy who like learned um loud punk rock electric guitar in his bedroom um he you know already his like uh perspectives were slightly widened than that and um yeah he went along to cleveland in ohio and um was working as a dog body in um what was called the right Tra- right track studios and uh, i loved just love the stories about how the boss was like oh when he cleaned the floor he really cleaned the floor and uh you know he was basically like mopping and helping out and just he once again absorbed things pick things up um eventually became a studio engineer um which is you know quite an involved role with lots of button pressing and stuff without the authority of the producer and then he was you know he got like the nights of the studio to himself to work on his demos for what i think was quite a long time and on the strength of those demos you know he got the deal with um tvt and that led to pretty hate machine so i think it's quite a sort of inspiring um it's not even rags to riches it's just like you know someone making something of themselves and basically doing it all on their own. And you kind of see that line carried through. He's a really collaborative guy, obviously given all the projects he's done, but yeah, from, from starting, he's basically like the one man auteur. Um, so yeah, it's really impressive stuff. Absolutely. And you left out, he played, he did an apprenticeship as a keyboard player in a number of new wave bands and cover bands in yeah. the Cleveland area. And, and you <laughs> I know, was doing so, it over there. Yeah. <laughs> I was but kind of skipping over a bump in history. <laughs> attempted that, you know, and failed. It, it's impressive that he shrewdly figured out that that was not how you're going to get places. And, and he, you know, gets the yeah. studio time very cleverly, hires a publicist, has this bidding war. And it's so funny they ended up with TBT because this was a record label that was very profitable, but really what they were known for, Steve Gottlieb, the head of that label, they put out TV's mm. greatest hits, which was a set of CD sets, co- compilations of <laughs> TV theme songs. So this wasn't somebody who's used to working with artists or cultivating careers. This was somebody who was very into shrewd calculations of what would make money. And he was right yeah. with with Reznor. You know, I think Pretty yeah. Hate Machine did went gold in its initial run. 
300,000 the first couple of years and then went gold shortly thereafter. But Gottlieb and Reznor never got along. In fact, Gottlieb called the first mix of that album an abortion. Talk about the, yeah. the contractual problems that Reznor got into with Gottlieb after that record came out. <laughs> sure. So obviously, you know, a bit of friction um, with the abortion comment, not the kind of feedback you want to hear. It, it's really amusing. Even now, I think it's like, it's just this thing that uh, Reznor's had to bury uh, and just not address because it, I think it stirs up lots of stuff in him. And it's like a really difficult, uh, it was a really difficult turning point when he's like, I'm trying to get my career going. And this, you know, this label guy is basically trying to control and manipulate me and like steer my um, creative direction. And all he really wants is someone to put up the money and help put the record out. Um, and it's like, it's really strange because, um, you know, I think it started off well. And maybe maybe the case is, as you say, TVT is such a weird label to even bother uh, approaching or, like, going with. Maybe TVT was the only one that came back. I don't think there was a huge, from what I know, I don't think there was a huge bidding war. Even though um, the band was considered very hot from, like, some of the live shows and stuff they were doing, it was still basically uh, Resno in the Right Track Studios, you know? So um, <clears throat> it's interesting how that came about. And... I think that part of the schism was like uh, Gottlieb like put off put a lot of money and effort and there was multiple studios like including um, sessions in London and then four different producers uh, who I to be blunt I had to look up because they've done a lot of really cool interesting stuff but really different things I think like um, Adrian Sherwood uh, John Fryer was one guy and then two two other blokes so. Yeah, I can run through that. It time. was Adrian Sherwood, who's best known uh, for U2 and New Order. Mark, no, Mark Floyd Ellis was the guy from U2 and New Order. Adrian Sherwood was known for Ministry and Skinny Puppy, which, and those are the bands that are commonly seen as the biggest precursors of Nine Inch Nails as quote unquote industrial bands, um, although mm-hmm. they, they were both quite sonically less song oriented and more edgy than nine inch nails flood ellis with mm-hmm. new order and u2 and also depeche mode uh john fryer from 4ad records the sport of coil depeche mode cocteau twins and keith leblanc who was a drummer and played in t- tack head but had can't come up actually playing on sugar hill sessions back when rap groups like the sugar hill gang would rap okay. uh, in wow. front of a live band so and treasure and drummers are always that's the one instrument that he really never felt competent to play so there's if anybody's going to be playing on his records it's generally a drummer and and you mentioned the live band it's also i think important to mention right from the get-go it's in the studio it's mm. tresner solo live it would either be a power trio a tresner on guitar tre- resner on guitar and a bassist and drummer or add a keyboard and eventually added a second guitarist as well so a three or four piece group um yeah, with the yeah. sound man sometimes doing backing vocals which is an interesting <laughs> touch but yeah. Uh, yeah and so there's this tension with gottlieb and then you know, Reznor's work ethic is always inspiring, and immediately they were out on tours, headlining tours, but also open for Skinny Puppy, Jesus and Mary Chain, Peter Murphy, and it gets to the cycle that Reznor referred to as his life being that I'm a music creation performance machine. Talk about that and how that impacted Reznor's psycho- psychology. Sure. I mean, I think... Um... As you're saying, like, I think, like, there was pressure from the record company for the record performed, but also I think there was, like, self-inflicted pressure as well. So, obviously, like, the common thing, and in some ways it still hasn't changed with music to some extent, um, even with download culture, is that, you know, bands need to get out there live and build their audience. Certainly it was truer back then because you didn't really have, uh, you know, the internet as um, full-blown as we do. And, um, yeah, he was obviously out there touring and things, but um, it's really interesting how he kind of had to, build and augment the band as he went along um, because obviously the, the sometimes the equipment would fail you know like with the playing the bits of backing tracks and stuff so um, yeah the, the live sound came out of that and um, I think he, he talks a lot about how they toured really hard um, all the way through until like you know 90, 91, 92 and then the, the broken mini album slash EP came out so that's a really long period from the release of um, the debut record and then loads of touring and I think that sort of paid off in terms of them being a really you know seasoned experienced um, group you know on stage Um, but like you say he he kind of entered into that really strong work ethic of um, covering all those bases at once and having lots of creative control and having a really clear clear direction in his mind of where he wanted to go. 
and that's where I think the clash came with Gottlieb because Gottlieb sort of like, oh, this won't sell. It's not, it's not quite commercial enough. And because Trump was doing something that bit different, that bit new, it wasn't synth pop. It wasn't pure industrial as we, you know, as we know it then. Um, that it was like harder to see the harder to see the true potential of where it could go. I'm sure he didn't necessarily know this himself, but I think touring is the way to certainly that time. Touring is the way to make it happen. Um, and off the back of that, you know, that attracted um, loads of other people in the future to him. Absolutely. And and the one gig that we didn't mention from that cycle of touring was Lollapalooza 91. This was the first Lollapalooza tour headlined by Jane's Addiction, mm. you know, featuring uh, Living Color, the Butthole Surfers. It's very much one of the legendary tours of the early 90s and really, I think, gave Resonator Nine Inch Nails a big platform and a lot of credibility. But let's hear a song from Broken. Uh, this is Happiness and Slavery. a song off the broken ep called happiness and slavery which references obviously his interest in, in snm sexuality but also his relationship with gottlieb and he uses that term slave frequently and um and the sound is very obviously a clear break from uh, pretty hate machine which some people have called you know a dirtied up human league i remember <laughs> as a as a as a teen when i bought that EP, I was expecting something like Ministry's Land of Rape and Honey or Skinny Puppy based on the, the, the buzz I was hearing about Nine Inch Nails. And when I got my hands on it, I was massively disappointed, although I found myself, you know, playing it a lot to my friends. It was a good party record, but but it was not the, you know, vicious noise machine I was craving at the time. And Broken, on the other hand, I think went a long way to restore mm. his credibility in that. But it's not something he did in a calculated way, unless he was maybe calculated to piss off Gottlieb. But he actually had to record that EP in secret to keep Gottlieb from interfering with it. And then meanwhile, a guy named Jimmy Iovine with uh, Interscope Records is calling Gottlieb every day, trying to get uh, Reznor's contract. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird time, isn't it? And so like, it was a natural thing to break with Gottlieb and TVT, you know, to almost go to anyone. But like Jimmy Iovine, you know, Interscope, really strong record, loads of financial backing behind him. And it obviously, it, it, given the fact that he was so doggedly pursuing Resner, uh, you get the sense that, you know, he would have um, given a lot, <laughs> a lot can switch over. And it's fascinating because Iovine obviously saw the wealth of um, potential in Resner's future recording career. And it's, it's amazing because he couldn't necessarily have I don't know, off the back of that, there's two records, you know, um, he couldn't necessarily have foreseen what was to come, which is like a really great, you know, really great credit to him to give Reznor that opportunity um, and support him so much. Um, and that's the thing with, with Gottlieb, the, the issue around creative control, as you say, he said, um, Reznor said the, the, the ongoing lawsuit, which I think actually, you know, was drawn out for quite some time, added so much pressure and stress and made him, um, quite depressed and angry and a lot of that actually filtered through into the broken record and there's these crazy things about with um, uh, you know on the, the LP version there's like something in the run out groove about like um, uh, eat your heart out Steve or something and then in like the credits it's like um, something like oh, I can't remember now it's like big thanks to um, big no thanks to this person you know who you are like it's almost like you know, obsessive serial killer kind of territory. I'm like, <laughs> I will get you one day. Um, but for now, I'm just going to keep making my music and these, these veiled, strange, non-threats that in like slightly passive-aggressive language. So yeah, it really did seem to eat him up inside. Um, and obviously making the jump to Iovine and recording the broken uh, EP in secret, it just gave him actual creative freedom, which is what he felt he needed to, to go somewhere. And and Ivine cut a win-win-win deal ultimately, although I'm sure Reznor <laughs> wouldn't like the idea, but Gottlieb got half the publishing and the proceeds, not just from Nine Inch Nails' future records mm. up through the end of the 90s, but 
you know, Reznor's deal with, with Interscope was the creation of a new record label, Nothing Records, which, you know, he signs Marilyn Manson and has massive success with that. And Gottlieb got half of all that as well. So it was a very expensive mm. uh, situation for Reznor. Um, but yeah, ultimately, yeah. you know, he got what he wanted, which was the freedom to create. And let's talk about the, the way they promoted Broken uh, through video and, and their struggles to get the videos that they made to promote Broken seen by an audience. Yeah, that was a really strange situation. Um, it's interesting, you mentioned early on about um, the different producers uh, that Resnick was keen to work with. And when you actually hear the bands play back to you, it's kind of like, okay, this is perhaps uh, the sort of DNA of Nine Inch Nails. And um, the, the who's who element of that, you know, includes um, an essential act, um, Coil. So, you know, um, Peter Sleazy Christofferson, um, formerly of Throwing Gristle, you know, um, his his presence in, in Coil and as a, a video director as well. And obviously his background in... Um, I've completely forgotten the name now. The company that did the artwork for Pink Floyd. Um, hypnosis. The designer. Yeah, Thank you. Hypnosis. Not <laughs> um, to be confused with the with company that's buying up everybody's publishing rights now, which was named after the as a as a tribute of, in some bizarre way to the graphics company. But go ahead. Okay, um, but no, thank you because it is important. And so, um, yeah, you know the the connection with Coil and stuff. He um, he got Peter Christofferson into. Um, direct a few uh, Nine Inch Nails promos from around that time and what's crazy is like Resonance you know he's a big sort of like slasher movie horror fan um, from things like um, the Hellraiser films and the books as well um, and you know even just going back to yeah the slasher films of the 80s he um, he was really keen to work with someone someone like that um, who was willing to push the envelope a little bit, you know, coil such a strange experimental group and really on the alternative fringes of what could be defined as music. Um, Resner, you know, did some, some film work with them and you'd think you'd just have a series of straight videos for some of the songs off of Broken. Because if I remember rightly, Broken, because it was kind of like an EP thing, I don't think there was actual singles, but there were there were videos in support of the music. So it's another way to get it out there. And people obviously go and buy the EP anyway. And um, they ended up collating, you know, three or four videos into what became known as the Broken movie, somewhat notoriously. And this was basically a kind of unshowable um unshowable film reel of the videos and then uh, intercut with some strange sort of narrative around um, someone who kidnaps someone and then takes them away and tortures them in a really uh, graphic, violent, brutal, cruel, demeaning ways um, based upon the um, the film Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is actually about a real guy. Um, I don't know if anyone... Know if a real guy who that. lied about um, all his crimes, but that's an aside. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. He killed loads of people, but... Uh, well, he, he claimed he killed loads more, of people, right? but it turns out that he probably didn't, and the police were using him to close up cases <laughs> they couldn't solve. So anyway, but that's that's an aside. But um, yeah, and the, and the broken film... I remember that was being passed out bootleg copies on VHS, the same trading network mm. that was trading things like, you know, the Frank Zappa groupie who did horrible things with a flute or Chuck Berry uh, violates fans in, in utterly disgusting ways. And and so, uh, you know, it was stymied because it was very hard for him to get it released. It's not the kind of thing that they would sell at Walmart or whatever, but um, it was out there and it, it sort of added to the buzz about Nine Inch Nails and my perception and the credibility, but yeah. And um, and I want to break real quick to hear from our sponsors. And when we get back, we'll actually start talking about the creation of the downward spiral. And so he's at a point where he's secured his freedom, essentially, or enough freedom to make the music he wants to make. He's uh, been touring for years. He's broken up with a longtime living girlfriend. He's essentially homeless, although he's got plenty of resources. Tries living in New Orleans and looks for studios to record. For whatever reason, he ends up leaving New Orleans to go to Los Angeles. The story is he saw 15 different houses in one day, picked one, and uh, then he gets a mailer advising him, you know, this disclaimer that the law requires them to send out that there was this horrific series of murders committed in the house or one one horrible night of murders. And it's it's not just any murder. This is the Manson family. This is the Sharon Tate house where members of the Manson family murdered Sharon Tate and JC bring the celebrity hairdresser and Wojtek Frykowski and Abigail Folger, the Folger's coffee heiress, uh, and as well as uh, a kid that just happened to be in the driveway at the time. And 
so it's this, you know, one of the most notorious sites in U.S. history. And obviously, given Reznor's background and, and pre-elections, you want it's, to, it's just strange credulity to think he didn't know that was the house. Although it's also entirely plausible if he's, you know, in a hurry and he's looking at 15 houses in one day, he doesn't know his way around L.A. And the house obviously doesn't have big signs on it. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, he finds himself in this infamous house that's now been demolished. Uh, I think it was, he was one of the last residents of the house, but spending eleven thousand yeah. dollars a month to live there and record, and from the get go, the the project is behind because you know it's supposed to take a month to build a studio, it takes three months because Reznor decides he needs to learn how to build a studio himself. He's got <laughs> professional help, but you know he's in there, and and the portrait of Reznor that comes through is one of just an absolute workaholic. I mean, he's, he's spending a minimum of 14 hours a day working and living there in the house. He says he hates LA. He, he never goes out, never meets anybody. So, so it's basically <laughs> him and a handful of collaborators, um, you know, working on this flood. Ellis is back. Uh, his sound man, whose name is Sean starts with a B. Uh, Bevan. Bevins. Yeah. Is, is there. Um, and initially he, uh, offers his guitarist the opportunity to contribute songs to the record, but that doesn't work out at all. And in fact, writes a song called Piggy about Richard Patrick after that falling out. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird origin story. I think that, um, I, I think from what I've read and researched, I think the, the Richard Patrick story is perhaps the most credible. And I think obviously because the song um, is a weird kind of like, uh, for me, a weird kind of meld of like relationship breakup um, and almost kind of like a, an alternative, I will survive in terms of, um, I think it's the, uh, it's the second moment on the album where the line, nothing can stop me now, um, is introduced and actually closes the track. Um, and it's this weird vibe of, you know, going through, uh, the breakup of an emotional connection with someone that might not be necessarily, you know, uh, a, a sexual relationship. Um, and it's a, it could be a close friend, someone like Richard Patrick, a long-term collaborator. Um, and it, it's a really weird story because you think how close these guys were. And in essence, um, the way Patrick tells it is that John Malm, the manager of the band, um, was sort of saying, look, you know, maybe you should go down the road, um, get yourself a job, pizza delivery place, keep yourself ticking over while we're doing the record. So he was really kind of like, almost like kind of being nudged away, felt quite disassociated from the process. Um, and what he learned was, you know, if he was chipping in pieces of music, he wouldn't necessarily see any royalties from that process. He wouldn't necessarily be credited. He would just be, uh, well, as the, the songwriter, he would just be another musician who happened to perform, you know, within the songs as if he was playing a gig. And um, I think he felt really uh, disenfranchised by that and perhaps slightly betrayed. So he went off to um, go and start the band Filter and had you know good success with that. And I think <clears throat> I think in some ways I got the impression that Reznor actually kind of encouraged him to go and do his own thing. And it was perhaps a sense of because it was quite a one man show and Reznor needed people to do X and Y as and when he needed them to, as you can get an engineer or a producer or something to, um, you know, help you fulfill your vision. Um, the idea of an extra guitarist, unless they're going to lay down some amazing solos or something, um, you know, they're not strictly necessary to the process. Um, and I, yeah, the, the reason for the, the term piggy apparently just comes from, um, a sort of nickname that got bandied around in sound checks and stuff. Um, and it's that weird sort of connection with the Lord of the Flies culture where, you know, in, in the film, I'm sorry, in the book, <laughs> William Golding's book, um, he's the, he's the weaker, more vulnerable character who's sort of exploited. Um, so I don't know if Reznor actually meant it as a reference to that, but the association still kind of comes through, obviously. And, um, yeah, Richard Patrick was just the kind of person who seemed slightly, um, isolated, pushed out of the process and there wasn't really a place for him anymore. And um, yeah, that's the theory about where Piggy came from. And one great thing to mention, you were talking earlier about drumming. Um, I think that's Reznor's only, as far as we know, um, recorded um, performance on drums. It's only an excellent one where he basically creates the, you know, the outro of the song and just tried to go as wild as he could on the drums. And it's really weirdly together. 
slightly sort of falls apart. The rhythm kind of collapses, but it's also sort of on purpose. And he kind of lets it happen and just goes with it and then kind of brings it back and then, you know, brings the song to a close with the big bass hits and the crashing cymbals and stuff and the nothing can stop me now line. So it was actually, it's actually an amazing drum performance, especially as he makes it into something slightly weird, slightly avant-garde and experimental, um, but still actually keeps it all together. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of that drumming from uh, Piggy by Nine Inch Nails. And that was Trent Reznor playing drums on the song Piggy, which was uh, not dedicated to, but perhaps about his relationship with Richard <laughs> Piggy Patrick, who, who tried to resist the nickname. Nobody wants to be Piggy from uh, Lord of the Flies. But one of the other collaborators that came in was Adrian Ballou, the legendary uh, hotshot session guitarist and member of King Crimson. But Ballou is somebody who played on David Bowie's Berlin period albums, particularly Low, which was one of the lodestars for this album, one of the, the signposts that Trent Reznor followed very much. Can you talk about a little bit, and obviously Reznor would go ahead and collaborate with Bowie, but one of the things I thought was fascinating was sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy of being fascinated with somebody like Bowie in that period, because that's when Bowie had become, he'd, he'd lived through the thin white white duke phase of maximum mm. cocaine use maximum isolation maximum celebrity i mean you know got so whacked out of his mind and so obsessed with the occult and nazis that he's photographed sig highland people coming out of a limo and weighs about nine pounds and is living on uh milk and limes i think and and, and uh, peppers peppers yeah green peppers and, and milk and and um yeah that will keep you from getting scurvy but <laughs> not much else but you know then he goes to berlin and records a series of albums produces two iggy pop albums and cuts four albums on his own and mm. Reznor ends up in that same boat where after you know up to this point he'd been very available to fans and very excited to have fans but not only is the self-loathing that you mentioned becomes introduced and is it's not there on the first album. The first album is I'm coming from these bleak circumstances, but I can get through this. But by the time of Broken and especially the downward spiral, he's really not liking himself. And you have to think that the life of hedonism of being a traveling rock and roller contributes to that. What's your take on that sort of hall of mirrors? You know, I got everything I wanted and it's living hell phenomenon. Yeah, it's a it's a really weird contradiction, isn't it? Um, I think I think it's the as you mentioned earlier, like the kind of the grind of the touring process um, actually wears wears rock stars down. Even though you you kind of feel you're having a great time and like this is the best things can ever be, and you you know you probably are to some extent, but you're um, you're completely disconnected from uh, everyday reality that everyone else is living, <laughs> which is I guess kind of why they're at the shows. Um, but you know it's that um, it's that Pink Floyd the wall element where um you know the character pink is just in his own little bubble and kind of allowed to bounce around in this strange uh unreal universe and go crazy and um you know it's the fact that like when you're touring you're constantly moving you never stay anywhere you don't stay anywhere that comfortable you're not settled hard to build up meaningful relationships so obviously casual sex i'm sure is uh freely available give or take um but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything and obviously the ways in which people like you or um, let's say care about you is is fleeting and it's built upon a, the image of the persona as well. They don't really know you. They're kind of in love with you on stage or maybe even just the music and you happen to be connected to the music. So I think those things um, kind of grind musicians down along with like, <laughs> if I may be so boring, like, you know, bad diet and um, obviously drug intake and not enough sleep and things like that. So you're kind of just car crashing uh, in a lot of, I think, a lot of hedonistic um, musicians' lives. You're kind of car crashing from gig to gig. So, like, the show's amazing, but, you know, you're not doing anything else. You're not paying your bills. You're not keeping anything together uh, in, normal, in the normal sense. And you might happen to make some music along the way. 
Um, and that's kind of it. You're just going hand to mouth, so to speak. So there's a slight sort of, uh, I think, desperation to that, um, which could unsettle, you know, many a uh, sensitive individual. But it's just the fact that, um, you know, along with that, um, Reznor's using uh, past experiences from his life to reflect upon his views on, you know, religion and relationships and things like that. And that obviously informs um, the content of the downward spiral. And once you get into that kind of um, negativity, the, um, the, you know, the trajectory is often um, negative and it doesn't necessarily go anywhere. It's like nihilism in itself. It doesn't really have an end. It's sort of as far as you can take it to the point at which you can take no more. So, um, yeah, I think he kind of got himself stuck in um, a situation uh, mentally from which there wasn't any um, clear way out but to keep on going. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought up Pink Floyd because, you know, we've talked about his new wave influences and his industrial influences, but arena rock, you know, as a Midwesterner who grew up in the 70s and 80s, Reznor, of course, was exposed to and loved Kiss, Alice <laughs> Cooper, and Pink Floyd, you know, who would come through with these epic spectacles of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the wall and, and, and animals and, and that sort of thing. And so Reznor's live shows were very much influenced by that sort of strain of 70s theatrical rock. And it was, uh, you know, a fusing of influences. And it, the timing of this record's release, it's it's long delayed. And, and in the record biz press, you know, there was a lot of tut-tutting about, you know, Iovine's wasting his money and, you know, there was rumors mm-hmm. of drug abuse and, and you know, anytime you, you give somebody unlimited money and time, you, you have the risk it's going to turn into Axl Rose and Chinese democracy and take 20 years to come out or never come out at all. You know, the Brian Wilson's... album that takes ages to make. Yes, yeah, so or Brian Wilson's Smile, which, you know, a lot of people love as a masterpiece, but it took 40 years to officially be released. So, but yeah. Reznor does deliver the goods. The album comes out, does very well right out of the gate, ultimately sells, you know, goes uh, quintuple platinum, sells 5 million copies, and the timing of it is just perfect. It comes out just a month before Kurt Cobain kills himself. And I've spoken with author Adam Caress about the way the record industry seized on that to in mm. the kind of aesthetic free-for-all that had been going on. I mean, you had – the record companies were just signing everybody because they had no idea what was going to be popular anymore. There's this huge variety yeah. of bands uh, and, and acts of all kinds that are suddenly massively successful. Hip-hop bands, grunge bands, you know, alternative bands like the Pixies that don't have anything to do with grunge, industrial, just having <laughs> obviously – and, and, you know, Reznor sneaks out right in that window before the clampdown comes, and it's only going to be Candlebox and Nickelback and Blur and bands that are exactly like Kurt mm-hmm. Cobain uh, that get promoted. <laughs> and, and, you know, but he's also sort of riding away. There's a whole list of bands that you put together that put out these very dark, grim albums around the same time. Alice in Chains' Dirt, obviously, is one. Pantera puts out mm-hmm. an album. STP, the Deftones, and you really focus in on the Manic Street Preachers and their album, The Holy Bible, and then the fate yeah. of Richie Edwards. And, and, you know, to me, it's like Edwards and, and Reznor are very much parallel figures. They're both pushing it as hard as they can. They produce these works that their fans regard as, you know, the, this is their ultimate masterpiece statement. But Richie Edwards doesn't come back from it, and Reznor does. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? And it's like on the surface, the, the two bands actually don't have a lot in common because it's like um, Reznor takes a very, um, I think, universal, instinctive, uh, you know, approach to like big emotions and feelings and, uh, and kind of human situation, whereas the Manics took a, a really the opposite, you know, kind of like pop culture and also highly intellectual, very um, literary, you know, referential um, kind of path where it's all about kind of like context and um, and connections and things like that of ideas. So the, it's weird that those two sort of things, yeah, I think those two things do sort of run um, quite well in parallel because, um, as you say, like Richie Edwards and Trent Reznor, they kind of had that like shared trajectory um, mentality of like questioning what is everything worth and when you strip away more and more layers um, which is what Reznor talked about as the concept for the downward spiral you kind of see that there isn't much there isn't much there left and when you run out of things to believe in it's hard to take um, I think it's harder to take a positive stand on your life and find um, find value 
in uh, in the future, and to see where you know to see where you're going with anything because what's worth pursuing, and you know it, you can say there's like art for art's sake, but if you're deeply unhappy, it's also really hard to get out of bed in the morning and and carry on with that, especially if your work itself is on the darker side of things. Um, and it's interesting because like some people don't have any um, idea about the manic so they never really broke America and so on. So it's it's a weird um, it's a weird connection for some people. But you know the the, the downward spiral and the Holy Album they both have this um, the Holy the Album Holy Bible. Have, uh, sorry yeah. the Holy Bible. <laughs> <laughs> some people consider it the Holy Album, but it's <laughs> the Freud and Flip, isn't it? It's like it's one of my favourites. Um, the the Holy Bible has that you know very stripped back, really harsh, dry. Um, not like rough underproduced aesthetic, but just like very lean, very clean um, sort of sound, very post-punk, um, like public image limited kind of thing. Uh, and I think, you know, the Down Sparrow has some of that too, um, because it's not about necessarily making things sound, um, once again, really slick and shiny and, um, as you say, perfectly on the beat and so on. Um, but those two, those two records share this kind of like, cadaverous um harsh mental landscape and what's what's really rough on the listener and i think on the two you know the two key architects behind those albums is um the the when you take on board that kind of mentality it can be quite uh, it can become quite a dark um uh gravity inducing sort of uh situation to put yourself in but you know when the record finishes hopefully you think you reflect upon that and you say well that was interesting and it took me to a certain space but also well, I enjoyed it I got something out of it it resonated with me and I had some cathartic experience and now I go and go on with my life and things I think what's challenging is sometimes that not the record itself influences people in this way but it um it kind of um sometimes overshadows overshadows people and they kind of carry it with them which I think you know really happened to someone like Edwards and uh, to some extent, Bresner, to which they couldn't shake it off. You know, it wasn't just about persona. It was just about, oh, fuck, this really is me. And it's like, what kind of person am I? Yeah, and so many of his contemporaries, Scott Wheeland of the Stuntable Pilots, uh, Lane Staney of Alice in Chains, end up Odin, mm. Dimebag Daryl Pantera is murdered after an ugly interband feud inspires, you know, a fan, uh, somebody who thought they were a fan to murder the legendary guitarist. Yeah. And so, you know, and there's this tr- wake of tragedies in the in the trail of this album and and you can't blame the album but you know mm, the columbine yeah. massacre happens in colorado and a lot of people do blame music marilyn manson really took the heat from it but so did nine inch nails and yeah. you've got a quote in here about the the album's nihilistic imperative the empowerment that comes when there's no fixed meaning or higher authority in the universe and you know you're playing with fire when you're when you're thinking about ideas like that and you're putting them out there, especially to an audience of young people who mm-hmm. are frequently, you know, sort of a self-selected troubled youth coterie in a lot of ways. I mean, that's the cliche, but if, if you read like Daphne Carr's book about Pretty Hate Machine, where she interviews multiple Nine Inch Nail fans, that's a constant yeah, theme yeah. that this music spoke to people because they needed it in their lives because their lives were pretty bleak. But I want to I want to turn and talk about the closer video because he takes a very different direction after the experience of Broken, where he just did what he wanted to do <laughs> yeah. and creates this video so nobody can see. He works with Mark Romanek and does this video yeah. for Closer, which to this day I still cannot believe was just a staple of MTV at the time, but it absolutely was. Tell us about that video and how that broke through. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's it's an amazing um, like vault fast, isn't it? It's like it's real contrast to what he was doing before. And I, I, you can sort of feel his frustration because I think like Broken Movie was like a real experiment and kind of a fuck you is like, how far can I push MTV and so on? It's like, oh, they won't show it. The video is weird. The video was never actually, um, I don't think it was never actually banned. It's just they're like, oh, we're not going to show it. Do you know what I mean? It's like they just wouldn't accept it. It wasn't like an appropriate format and so on. And it was 20 minutes still. Um, yeah. You know, when, when he came to Closer, it was like, okay, let's try and go the other way and let's do something genuinely artistic, but let's try and do it really, um, you know, not even not even cliche, the opposite. Let's try and do something really well put together, um, conceptually rich, um, really like powerful images still, and still, you know, challenging and evocative of lots of kind of transgressive themes of S&M and so on and just you know uh, let's say violence like or um, uh, inherent violence and um, 
and and death and so on and decay um and let's put that out there in a in a much like shinier sort of presentation with someone who really knows what they're doing and has an amazing track record so i think even like you know the reputation of romanic was um was useful to that um but even then they went like really crazy with it they shot it in digital and they shot it um on vintage film stock i think from the 1920s so there's you know a hand-reeled camera and the stock's really expensive and if you fuck it up or you wind it too fast you know it messes up the recording so they you know they really went to town on trying to do something amazing and they spent a lot of money on it um and there was a contentious point at which um resin was saying uh you know that the, there's an uncensored kind of version, which is a bit more graphic and so on, which I think featured some um, anatomical illustrations of female and male genitalia, not even in a state of corrosion or infection or anything, just like, you know, this is part of our human bodies. And that was a little bit too much just because it was um, sort of on the nose for MTV. And um, he was like, oh, fuck it. So what, we ended up like, making like two versions of the film, <laughs> you know, like slightly edited and stuff. But what they did was really funny where they just kind of like... Um, the closer song itself as a single they just kind of like gapped out the 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 swearing of the fuck and um they just kind of put like a censored um you know uh, title card up instead of some of those pseudo graphic images um which were you know explicit as in honest and true but weren't necessarily anything um horrific or contentious uh to people's general sensibilities so uh yeah the video was an amazing achievement and it, it, it really stuck in people's imaginations you know there's so many things that i can sort of like reel off the top of my head which involve like resna where he's like naked and sort of strung up with the ball gag and then he's like in the wind tunnel um and then he's like being spun from the ceiling and it's great fun the video you know it's really great fun uh, it's really visually arresting and it jumps from thing to thing and yet also it kind of lingers where it's necessary has the wacky little heart sitting in the chair that's being like sort of you know pumped away by wires and stuff um, there's a monkey on a crucifix the monkey was not harmed I think all the listeners will be glad to know there's just so much like amazing stuff in there um, so I think even if you didn't necessarily like the song which is you know it's a really groovy um, funk driven song um, you, there was so much like cool stuff you could see in the video it was kind of a visual feast so having other people like oh we're a band and here's us playing our instruments in a room and being really real it doesn't really compete in terms of you know artistic um creation so that was the that was the great achievement of closer it was something um really interesting and challenging but it didn't have to be disgusting or provocative for its own sake and let's hear one last song and then talk about the influence of this album on other people and and this is one of the songs that had the biggest secondhand impact and this is hurt by nine inch nails to see if i still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the And that was Trent Reznor's Hurt from the Downward Spiral album by Nine Inch Nails. And that song's probably most famous as a Johnny Cash song. And and it was <laughs> made famous in a video directed by Mark Romanek, who did the, the Closer video. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the circle's connected. Rick Rubin produced those Johnny Cash albums and, you know, got, got Johnny Cash covering Danzig and Soundgarden and so many other artists. And, and he really had to write the letter, the lyrics to that song down on paper to show to Johnny Cash to Johnny Cash couldn't get past the, the sound of it. And, and once he got the lyrics and he absorbed it, creates this version that Trent Reznor described as it was like having your girlfriend stolen. Like, you know, it's, it's very much like the way Otis Redding described here in respect once, once Aretha Franklin sang it, you know, damn, that girl stole my song. Like, you're not getting it back after a performance like that. And that was obviously Johnny Cash is one of his last, I think his last release before he died. And, and, you know, anybody, I remember when I first saw that video and having been a Johnny Cash fan my entire life, it was this sudden painful realization of, Oh my God, Johnny's going to die real soon. And, you know, it's just Mm. so powerful. And, you know, uh, and I think it also gives 
it validates Reznor's songwriting in a way because that's the real test of a songwriter, you know, like an Irving Berlin or a Paul McCartney. That's somebody that you know can write a song that it's not just their version that almost anybody can sing the song and it's still going to have some magic and some power. And when you get somebody like Johnny Cash that can really bring yeah. power and life experience to it, um, it's incredible. But I want to talk, get you to talk a little bit before we wrap up about the other groups that were influenced by um, by Nine Inch Nails. And, and you break post Nine Inch Nails rock into three categories. You've got new metal, emo, and what you call the new rock revolution. And you, you bag on new metal, which everybody does, but two out of those three categories did have big Nine Inch Nails influences, and one of them didn't. Tell us about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's really hard for me to nail down now. Sorry, pun. Um, but I mean, like, it's it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, the the new metal thing it sort of just came at a weird time for me um, at the switch of the millennium and stuff. And I was like, I was just so unimpressed by people like Bin Biscuit and so on. Like, I I think you could sort of like give them credit as like a band that had clearly worked hard and stuff, but I just thought their songs and their, um, their, their attitude was so bad. Um, but then you, you had other sort of like groups that were of that generation. Like for me, like, for example, like I really liked Incubus. I think there's, I think they're actually kind of quite unfashionable now, uh, <laughs> but I thought like, you know, the guitarist, like Mike Eisenhower was amazing uh, and his use of effects and stuff. So yeah, it really was a mixed bag. And then, um, emo was sort of like one, one side of the musical spectrum in the early early 2000s it sort of took over that decade in some ways um there was like you know lots of different groups um lots of different groups and i think the one sort of thing they took from bands like Nirvana, nine inch nails and, and a lot of stuff that from from the 90s was just the ability to be more emotionally open and direct in their songs. and so it allowed for a breakdown of what we would now term uh, sort of the toxic side of masculinity. Not to say that masculinity is in and of itself toxic, because that'd be you know damning half the population. Um, but just the, obviously the you know the idea that um, music and um, lyrics and uh, the the persona of the musicians involved has to be aggressive and um, possessive and um, controlling and so on, which is the kind of thing you got from Limp Bizkit. You know, they're sort of like uh, their active misogyny and chauvinistic attitudes are just like, yeah. <laughs> and yet they, they, they but, um, adapted that extremity as an aesthetic. And that's the phrase you use in the book, mm-hmm. that, that they, they carried that torch from the grunge bands and from Nine Inch Nails and Ministry and others of just this idea yeah. of we're going to be as extreme as possible. Whereas groups like the White Stripes and the Strokes and the Hives that were critical darlings around the turn of the century, turn of the millennium, mm. As you point out, they're essentially a retro movement, and it seems like Nine Inch Nails had no impact on them. And I, and I think that was self-conscious of those groups at the time. They were going back to punk and blues, and but yeah, it, it does seem you know have, having done this show for so long and obsessed about music history that the more retro a group is, even if it's seen at the time as really bracing and powerful, it doesn't. They tend not to have as much of an impact on future groups, and I think that's very clear. You can see where mm, the mm. emo bands you know that are very influenced by nine inch nails are then very influential on the soundcloud mumble rappers like people little peep and and kodak black even and and you know so so this this kind of extremity and being on the cutting edge sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that goes forward and we don't have really time to go into much of Reznor's post <laughs> downward spiral life but he he does another massive album the fragile which is kind of his uh, sign of the times or whatever the big epic sprawling masterpiece yeah yeah that's a great comparison yeah and and, and then and then he battles his own demons and falls into addiction himself and then comes out of it and is a successful soundtrack creator so there's there's kind of a happy ending and he, he didn't go down the Lane Stamey path or uh, the the Richie Edwards path and he found a life and mm. redeemed himself and you know soundtrack work on the social network directed by david fincher and also want to mention he inspired uh fight club that chuck paluniak wrote that listening to the downward spiral so adam steiner the book is into the never nine inch nails and the creation of the downward spiral really had a fun time talking to you yeah cheers thank you um yeah it's it's really interesting it's one of those it's one of those crazy albums where it leads off into lots of mad tangents uh, <laughs> which I guess is why it became a book. Um, but yeah, no, thank you very much. And like, I really appreciate your questions. Follow- 
follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with R.J. Smith to talk about Los Angeles in the 1940s and the role that the city played in the birth of rhythm and blues, bebop, and gospel. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. To the Never, Nine Inch Nails and the Creation of the Downward Spiral is available from Backbeat. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.